You're listening to a C3 Victory podcast. To find out more, visit us online at c3victory.org.au. How's everybody tonight? All good? It's, it's light over here and dark over here. I don't know if that talks about the, the people or the room. Christina, did you deliberately choose that uh, scripture? Thanks, mate. You know, the, the psalm one? Yeah, it was kind of Yeah, interesting. That's exactly what the debate is over, whether he really is good or not, which is interesting. Just open it up. Uh, I don't know whether uh, to thank pastors Earl and Christina or slap them for giving me this topic. I mean, last month, Andrew, the scholar, gets the easy topic, and they give me the number one. I'm kidding you not. This is the number one objection to the reality of God. The number one out there. And, it's, uh, and it has been so for hundreds of years. This is not new, and so I can't tell you anything new, so we should just go. I thought I smelled curry cooking, so we should just go eat and have coffee and say, I can't straighten it out. And, and then you only give me 20 minutes to straighten it out. It shows a lot of confidence in me. Good on you. Thanks a lot. Hey, before, uh, before I go there, though, to this thing, I want to read a scripture. It's very similar to the one Christina read in Psalm 119.68. Things on the screen. Let's go to it. Where, uh, where the psalmist said, you are good and do only good. We believe that, don't we? Right? Good. I can hear Darren's deep voice. Yeah. I can't even get closet. Yeah. Um, so we agree with it, right? We believe that by nature, God is good and he works for our good. Is that right? Well, what would you say then to uh, young parents who were the night before playing with their little two-year-old? The next morning they get up and the two-year-old doesn't have any breath. And I've got to put a casket in the ground that big. What would you say to the mother whose 18-year-old daughter couldn't see any way out and decided to overdose. And as we're lowering the casket, her teenage friends are throwing their body across, screaming and wailing. What would you say? Would you still say God is good? What would you say to a non-Christian woman whose daughter was a midwife, had a career in front of her, but gave up her career to go overseas to be a missionary, came to our conference to be a part of it, and on the way home, a semi-trailer crossed the road, hit them head on, and killed a carload full of young missionaries. What would you say? Would you still say God is good and he only does good? Now, those are small things. Uh, what, how do you explain the 100, 200,000 innocent people killed in the tsunami? How do you explain starving children? I think it's a third of the world will go to bed tonight without an adequate meal whereas most of us are throwing food away. What do you say? Uh, one of my mentors came home after being in Haiti, holding a little baby in his arms and died while he was holding the baby, just simply because that baby had not had enough food to survive. He had more food on the plane on the way to Haiti than that baby had had in a month. What would you say? God is good. God's very quiet. What do you say to the family of the man that was just killed? He walked out in the, in the mall in Melbourne just to help, and he gets stabbed and killed. What would you say to his wife? Just because of an act of terrorism. 
what would you say? Where's God? That's what people ask. Why did he allow that? Why didn't he do something to stop that? The number one objection to the reality of God. If God is so good, why is there so much suffering? So many innocent people are paying a price that it's not their fault. It's pretty sobering because we can live in a bubble. I mean, until you walk out there. I mean, just last week, called up to the hospital. Young man laying in the bed. Life had gone and his wife is beckoning me over to pray over his body. Same age as my son. You know, and and this stuff repeats. And it's very easy to get in this bubble that all is good. You know, nothing bad like that would happen to us. Until. And it brings us to the number one objection to the the existence of God. Now, I know this is sobering and it goes very quiet in here. But I, I guarantee you, if you haven't had yet, you will have friends who will ask you this question. And even if you don't have friends who will ask you that, your enemies will ask you that. People at work will ask you that. People at university will ask you that. Because it is the number one objection to believing that there is a God of love. Let me read you something. Um, I think it will be on the second screen as to who it is. A guy named Lee Strobel. I brought some stuff. been reading through these books this week to get ready. Lee Strobel was a journalist, agnostic, who went about trying to do interviews, really to, as a skeptic, you know, and he got born again in the middle of it. But in one of his interviews, he went to a man named Charles Templeton. Um, don't know if you've ever heard of him. This is what Charles Templeton said. A loving God could not possibly be the author of the horrors we have been describing. He's talking about the Holocaust and so forth. Horrors that continue every day. Um, Horrors that continue every day have continued since time began and will continue as long as life exists. It's an inconceivable tale of suffering and death because the tale is fact. Is in truth the history of the world. It's obvious that there cannot be a loving God. Let me tell you about Charles Templeton. Graduate from a seminary. Did amazing evangelistic crusades with Billy Graham. He was known to be up there equal with Billy Graham. And he went and visited places, saw things. And the last thing that triggered this was a photo of a woman in Africa holding a dead baby, her child, that died simply because they could not get clean water. And he said, how can there be a God? And if there is a God, how could he even love anybody and let this happen? And I'll tell you, this question, this objection about God is is asked by a lot of people in many different ways, and it might shock you who asks you at times. My daughter, Erica, when she was about eight years old, six years old, eight years old, yeah, she said one day, Dad, out of the blue, Dad, God's good, and he knows everything, right? And I went, yes, honey, that's right. And then she went on, and the devil's bad, right? I said, right. And by this time, I was feeling pretty good about her understanding of God. And then this young girl asked one of life's most difficult questions. Here she, what was she, eight, something like that? Eight or nine. Yeah, she said, if God is good and he knows everything, why did he create the devil knowing that he would bring bad into the world? I thought, go ask your mother. <laughs> I couldn't answer that in, in the terms where an eight-year-old could still believe in God. 
Because here's the truth, guys. You can't just wallpaper over this. There is a cancer, and you can't put a Band-Aid on it. And the reality is that people out there know that there's a cancer. And we can't sit in holy huddles and pretend it doesn't exist. And that's the truth. And that's what we're facing. So the philosopher Solomon wrote this in Ecclesiastes. And this is a guy that had everything. I mean, he wasn't smart. They said he was wise, but anybody with 900 wives, golly. Uh, All right. Not that women aren't good, but 900, my Lord. Anyway, everything is meaningless, says the teacher, completely meaningless. Even Solomon got to, I mean, most scholars will debate around Solomon might have got to the stage where he saw everything in life and saw how empty it was that he gave up on faith. Isn't that crazy? And yet he's, he's got books in the Bible. Isn't that amazing? So really it depends on what kind of worldview you come from is how you're going to handle this. Worldview number one says this, God is in control. Now that's hard to say, well, if God is in control, and that's how it comes. Well, if God is in control, dot, dot, dot. Why don't he do something about it? But we do have a worldview, God is in control. We say that. We use the big word sovereignty, which means he's Lord over all. He's in control. But explain that. When your unbelieving neighbor comes over and says, my husband's just been killed on the motorcycle, and you've been trying to talk to them about faith, and there's nothing there to fall back on. God is in control. I don't think I could have said that to her at that moment and lived to tell you about it tonight. (laughs) The second worldview is this. God has lost control. Serious. I read a book by a rabbi a number of years ago, Rabbi Harold Kushner. You can go Google it. It's called When When Bad Things Happen to Good People. Um, Rabbi Kushner, unlike his Jewish heritage and faith, took this position that, yes, there is a God, but he can't do anything about what's happening in the world. He had a little daughter who died of leukemia, and he prayed, and he prayed, and he prayed, and she still died. Have you ever prayed for somebody who still died? I have. Prayed for people and seen them healed. Prayed for people and watched them go into eternity. So he writes a book, and his thesis of the book is this. Yes, there is a God. Yes, he did create. Yes, he started everything. But he stepped back and took his hands off and said, I can't do anything about it now. I've left it up to you. So God has lost control. And maybe that's one explanation. Yes, there is a God, but he is so distant that he's taken his hands off, and he has nothing to do with your life. Does that sound like the God of Jesus? Where he said he knows even the number of hairs on your head. That's how much he cares for you. There's a third view. God never had control. And this is where they're coming from, some of your friends, because they don't believe there is a God. I've heard a university student call God a mythical creature. So God never had control because there is no God. So it depends on your worldview. How you're gonna, and there are people out there with worldviews. And they're going to they're have one of these worldviews, but still wrestle through them. You need to understand that every one of these worldviews and every philosophical argument has a counter-argument. Just because they can say, well, if God... 
Because here's one of the points. God has put laws into motion that he won't violate. Right? Here's two laws that God won't violate. One, human freedom to choose. And two, the laws of nature that govern this world. God's not going to flick a switch in heaven and gravity stops. And we all go flying away. So in the goodness of God, in the laws of nature, God creates water. Good thing, huh? Water's good. Most of your body is made up of water. You couldn't live without water. Uh, most of life on the planet cannot live without water, right? Yeah. By the way, one of the debates of philosophers is this. Is this planet the best God can do? Or is there a better one out there? They're serious about that. Most old, old theologians like Augustine say, this is the best. Newer thought is, nah, don't think so. That doesn't mean we believe in Martians. And if there were, they probably sinned also. But here's the law of nature that governs our world. God makes water. I just drank some. I need it. You hydrate the body. You hydrate plants. You use it to wash. All kind of things. And so God has given us this gift of water. But when humans take it and they twist the gift and they abuse the gift, they could use the water to drown somebody. See that? God has given us wood in the form of trees that bear fruit, have leaves that, that have shade for all kinds of animals, even people. But you take that same piece of tree or of wood and you break it down and you make a hard stick out of it, you can beat somebody to death with it. That's a law of nature. Why didn't God do something about it? Is he going to dry up the earth so nobody drowns anybody? There will always be a counter argument to, well, God should do something. And by the way, it doesn't mean he hasn't done something. It's just kind of a bit longer term than what we like. So, you know, here's, here's how you can approach this thing. You can approach it philosophically. And that's what people do every day. There's debates around the world somewhere about if there is a God, then why? And they get into philosophy. And you need to know if they come to this conclusion that because there's evil and there's suffering, then there cannot be a loving God, as Templeton came to that conclusion, then his philosophy leaves all other kind of things open. For counter-arguments, it could be worse. Every argument has a counter-argument. So once you get into the world of philosophy and thinkers and they're trying to come up, they don't have a reason for things. They don't have an answer for things. As a matter of fact, in the philosophical world, it just all happened and it's supposed to be getting better through the laws of evolution. But if this is the best, man, I'd hate to see the worst. And you can get into philosophy. And, and there's all kind of debates going on, but the reality of philosophy is they still leave a lot of unanswered questions. Because it's philosophy. Doesn't mean it's bad, it just means it's philosophy. Or you can approach this experientially, which most of us do. Um, most of us interpret the world through the lens of our experiences. We do. Which, by the way, change constantly. Right? And this makes the reality of God subject to our circumstances. So today God is good because he allowed me a loan to get the new car. How many of you pray for that? Oh, God, if you want me to have that car, let me get that loan. That ain't God, sweetheart. That's a bank. <laughs> Who's saying, gotcha. 
If God was giving you the car, he'd pay the bill. He doesn't need a loan. How many people pray that? And don't tell me you pray for car parks. That's our experience. God is so good today. I've got to park at the square at Christmas time. But yesterday it was bad because when I was trying to pull in, somebody ran into me and hit me, and then it was half my fault. Changes. Experience. God is good today because I feel strong and I'm encouraged. Tomorrow I get a bad medical report. Where did the goodness of God go? Yet Job said this, and this is, I mean, after chapter after chapter after chapter of Job debating with God about his goodness, one thing Job didn't really say was why. He just said, what the? But finally he got to the place where he said this, even if God killed me, I'll still trust him. Now, don't ask me how to get to that point because I'm not there yet. But I'm sure if I got struck with something like him, faith would have to take me there. And Job and the psalmist also said, he gives us songs in the night. You know what that says? Every soul will have a nighttime as well as you have a daytime. And you know what nighttime represents, don't you? Dark periods. Dark, dark periods. One of the greatest preachers in history. If you've never read his stuff, you should. Charles Haddon Spurgeon. He was called the Prince of Preachers. He used to preach to 10,000 before microphones were invented. Um, one day in his big tabernacle, I'm watching my time, in his big tabernacle in England, big oval kind of thing, way at the back, he can't see, he just saw something happen. All of a sudden there was movement and there was like a riot and people were stampeding to get out and people got crushed and killed because some idiot yells out in the crowd, fire. And so people panic and people got killed. And you could go, oh, what did he do? Did he give up preaching? The next week, the Queen of England went to hear him. She said, if people will die to hear this man, I've got to go hear him. Yet, yet Charles Haddon Spurgeon, I understand this, after preaching on Sunday, would be deeply depressed on Monday. You know how that feels? I asked him, how'd you go today? Oh, it wasn't that good. It's not that good. And, and he's, going, he's going, no, no, you did good. You did. No, I didn't do good. I wasn't happy with it. That's my Mondays. He'd get in deep depression. He was known to be in deep depression on Mondays after preaching a cracker of a sermon on Sunday where even the Queen of England would come to hear. Um, dark nights of the soul. Yet the psalmist and Job said this, he, God, gives me songs in the night. You might be in the nighttime, but you don't have to be there alone. Okay? So you can, you can, you can, you can face this, this worldview experientially, but you're going to be on a roller coaster ride. Because it's all subjective. It'll change like the wind. Or you could face it, and I'll use a big word, but I'll bring it back. You could, you could face this worldview theologically. And all I mean by that is this. Bring the study of God into it. Okay? You, you either got to look at it through philosophy and try to figure out why. And, and I'm not here to tell you why. The worst thing you do when somebody has a tragedy is to try to go give these pat answers. They do not want to hear your pat answers. Did you see on the news last week the, another Mass shooting in America, and uh, and one of, they interviewed one of the mothers, and she was tense, and her face was tense, and she said it a number of times on the news: "I don't want any more prayers, I want gun laws," because her son had gotten shot and killed. 
And she was angry, and rightfully so. Now, the worst thing a Christian could do is walk up and go, Sweetheart, there's a reason. Let me tell you why. You know, it's not the right thing to do. We're not here to tell people why. We're here to tell them what. What God wants to do. And how he wants to work in our lives. And so if we reconcile the way things are happening with the belief that God is still here, he does have a plan, he is in control, but it's, sometimes we just don't understand it. And that's where trust comes in. I get a little bit worried when one of my kids says to me, trust me, Dad. But I never get worried when God says it. Because usually when the kids say that, it usually means they're about to do something that's going to damage something of mine that I'm going to have to pay for. God doesn't do it that way. And Lee Strobel asked this question. I think I got this one. He was, yeah, he was, uh, he was talking to, in his skepticism, he not only went to interview Charles Stapleton, but he went to interview Peter Kreeft, who is, is the leading philosophical professor at Boston University. And a Christian, by the way. And written a number of books on suffering. And if you really want to read about the, the arguments and the counter-arguments, you need to get this book right here. Because I do not have near enough time to go through it, but it, it was amazing. The Case for Faith by Lee Strobel. And he goes through and he plays the devil's advocate. I'm not even sure Lee Strobel was a Christian when he started this interview with, with Dr. Kreeft. And he, he, he talked about how could there be a loving God when he causes evil in the world and there's presence of evil in the world. And Dr. Kreef comes straight back and says, does the presence of evil mean the absence of God? See, argument, counter argument. Right. If there is evil, there is no God. He says, just because there's evil, does that mean there is no God? Think about it. I mean, we, we face these kind of things all the time. So, you know, whether I can give you an explanation that's going to satisfy the doubts and help you convince your friends that God is a God of love and he's going to take care of you and you're all wrapped up in cotton wool and nothing bad's going to happen. You know, it's, you just got to go back and look at history and see that the very origins of what we call the Christian community was paid in blood. Whole families were thrown into the arena to be massacred just because they would not deny Christ and call Caesar God. Millions of Jews were killed because of a crazy fanatic called Hitler who hated them, said they can't be God's people. <clears throat> and I, I can't give you things that's going to satisfy doubts or, you know, why would a loving God allow this kind of thing? But I can tell you what I can do. I, I can show you that there is a way. And I'm not saying it's easy, and I'm not saying it's pat answers, and I'm not saying everybody's going to like the way, but we haven't been left to our own. So the first thing I want to show you before we close tonight is this. Uh, it didn't used to be this way. You know how Templeton said the world has always been evil, always had evil in the world. We will always have evil in the world. That ain't true. That actually ain't true. Uh, can you put up number one, Jason? It didn't used to be this way. Because it wasn't always bad. Contrary to what Templeton said, it hasn't always been bad. There was a time when everything was good, right? And I, I'm here to tell you, I don't know how long that time lasted. Because the Bible actually doesn't tell us how long it lasted when, God, when, when, when Adam and Eve walked with God. I mean, 
for heaven's sakes, they had to name the animals. That didn't happen in 24 hours. Think about it. Think about the joy of naming a giraffe. You know, think about all the animals and the creativity and the fun they must have had when these animals rock up. Look at that, Eve. Look at that. What does that look like to you? I'm not telling you. Put some clothes on, Adam. Anyway. But God saw all that he made and he said this. It's very good. Very good. So Templeton's not right. There was a world without suffering and pain. There wasn't even any weeds or thorns. And if they did eat meat, there was no fat in it. Simon actually would argue that there was no meat at that time. But the reality is something went wrong. It didn't stay. So Kreeft goes on and he says this. I think I got a next quote. He says, yes, God did create the possibility of evil. But people actualize the potentiality. So wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. How did God create evil. He didn't create evil. He created the potential for evil. How did he do that? By loving us enough to give us a choice. Well, why did he do that? Because he made us in his image. And he made us to relate and love to him, love love him because we wanted to, not because we had to. And it's the same today. Love isn't love until it has a choice not to love. Isn't that, isn't that deep? That's so deep, man, I'm swimming in it. <laughs> no, serious. It is a wow, isn't it? It's simple. People actualize a potentiality. The source of evil is not God's power, but mankind's freedom. Mm. Philip Yancey in his book, did I put that one in? No. Okay, let me read this one to you. This is this book. This is one of the most amazing books you could put in the hands of somebody who's gone through a lot of pain. If it's still in print, Philip Yancey, Where is God When It Hurts? Great. Did you read that before, Rach? No, I thought you might have through some of the stuff. Yeah, okay. Let me, let me tell you what he said. Much of the suffering on our planet has come about because of two principles that God built into creation. A physical world runs according to consistent natural laws and secondly, human freedom. There are those laws and they're in place. You know, and, and, and things will happen if you violate those laws. Like, for instance, you know, I'm going to step off a building tonight and just see if God will hold me up. Even Jesus said, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> Didn't he? Yeah. You know, the devil says, throw yourself off this highest building. And Jesus said, are you stupid or what? <laughs> I am a man. I can walk on water, but not air. But the deal is human law. Okay, second point is this. Let's put number two up. There is something wrong with this planet. It was good, but there's something wrong now. And the deal is this. No one, no one, no philosopher, no atheist, no scientist would say there's, it's perfect. What do you, what do you, just chill. Because whether you're an atheist, a deist, a theist, or a pagan, if you don't know what those are, write it down, go check it out. I'm not going to define everything. You can try to reason that away, or you can hear it from God's viewpoint. And God says it very clearly. We know that creation has been groaning since that day. But let me read that scripture to you because something amazing takes place in that scripture. It says this. Just listen for a minute. This is Romans 8, verse 18 and following. Yet what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory he will reveal to us later. In other words, what is taking place is far less 
than the great things that are about to replace it. Okay? For all creation is waiting eagerly for that day when God will reveal who his children really are. In other words, creation is going, come on, God. We're, we're, we're getting heavy with this thing. Against its will, that's creation. All creation was subjected to God's curse. But with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in the glorious freedom from, de- from death and decay. Creation itself knows this is coming to an end. But in the meantime, the world is groaning. The natural disasters aren't because we're burning fumes in the air. I know it contributes. But whether we didn't have the, the you know, the, what do they call it, the greenhouse gases and everything in the, in the planet, and you can go hug a tree all you want to, but that tree is still going to die. Serious. There will still be earthquakes and tsunamis and everything else. We didn't cause all, well, man did cause it. But the world is groaning under the weight of this thing saying, God, when is this going to be over? But listen to, the, listen to the thing he says. We know that all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth. How many of you ladies have had a baby? Put your hand up. Hi. I need to see. Good. Your son just put his hand up. A bit worried about that. Did it feel good, ladies? After? It's like, you know, I hate to quote him, but no, it was, a, it was, a, it was an actress, Carol Burnett in America. She's probably gone now. But uh, they asked her once, what did it feel like having a baby? She said, take your bottom lip and pull it up over your head. <laughs> and uh, who was it? One, one actor said, you know, that when the first contraction hit my wife, she told everybody in the room that, that my parents weren't married when I was born. <laughs> you'll, you'll get what that means in a minute. <laughs> you did this to me! And I hate you until the baby's born. There's a lot of pain until. And it's saying the world is in pain until. And there's something wrong with this planet until. We know that all creation is groaning until. But listen to this. It's not just creation groaning. Next verse says, and we believers also groan. And a bit later, you know what else it says? And the Holy Spirit groans. So here's the point. God isn't standing back, taking his hands off, going, your fault, you stuffed it up. You know, I I don't need you. I can make another one like you. I can get rid of you. God didn't do that. He joined in the pain. There is a word, it's a big word in theology, and it's called incarnational. You know what that means? Becoming flesh. That, that God just doesn't ache over what's happening. He became a man like us, and he took on our pain. You know? And this is the point. Even though something was wrong, God suffered so that this could happen. You know, if we want to talk about suffering, we want to talk about injustice, we want to talk about abuse, what about God himself taking that into himself in the person of Jesus. I mean, there's your link. God didn't step back as, you know, in in paganism, the deities stand back and they play with humanity. You know, the mythical gods, they just play with humanity. But the God that we know stepped down and became, it says in Philippians 2, he humbled himself and became a man and became obedient to death. He suffered the death of a criminal, it says in one version. Hmm. 
So number three, just to take up Templeton's point and start rounding it off, uh, let's go to three. This is not all there is. Yep, it was good. Nope, not now. It's in a mess. But that ain't all there is. There's a larger plan in play. And we just got to get to this. The world has not been left to itself to devolve to the point of self-destruction. Because not only did God suffer, but he broke the pain of death. You know, the Bible says that our, our final and greatest enemy is death. There's nothing worse than that. Because it, it's just kind of everything. And that enemy has been defeated. And because that enemy has been defeated, something's about to happen. The problem we got, though, is we're limited in time. Like We're, we're kind of like ants living on a ruler. Imagine that. Imagine if I brought a ruler in and I had two ants, but I had, somehow I had the ability to keep them on the ruler and they couldn't leave it. And they're running up and down the ruler. Okay? And to them, they're looking up from the ruler going, ah, it takes forever to get from one end to the other. And it gets so hot and I don't have enough water and this sucks. What are you doing to us up there? And that's what it's like with God. We live in this period called time. It's a created thing like a ruler. It's got a beginning and an end. It's not forever. And one day we get down to this end. Something's going to happen. And let me just read it to you. Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. This is the plan of God for redemption. You know what that means? He is going to buy back everything that was lost and create a new one. And then it's done. But here's the beauty of it. Because of what Jesus did at the cross, you and I get to be part of it. Right? So yes, we're in a world right now that has pain. Yes, we have pain. Yes, we will all die if he doesn't come back before that time. But death is not a finality. It is a doorway to us. There's something greater that's coming. We, we live in a culture that is, that, I don't know what, that, there's other cultures, the way they work death, they get through it far easier than we do. Because they see death as a part of life, not as something that's here to punish us. Because they know there's something larger. And it says this, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, now the dwelling of God is with men. He will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. This is no longer he's up there. This is he's here. He's here. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Now, I know that's not a lot of comfort to people who are in pain right now. But I'll tell you, to me, it, it, it gives hope that goes beyond something circumstantial and temporary. We're talking about something now that is forever. Because we believe we are people who have the capacity to live forever. Thanks for joining us for the C3 Victory Podcast. We would love to see you at one of our services. To find out more, visit us online at c3victory.org.au or check us out on Facebook or Instagram.